Turn with me, if you would, this morning to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. And let us give attention again to the reading of the Lord's Word. Romans 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 17. We trust the Lord to add His blessing to the public reading of His Word. And I dare say that that's a section that we'll be reading many times over. Perhaps even enough times over for it to be committed to memory. Who knows? But let's do, having read the Lord's Word, bow our heads together again and ask Him to help us as we consider it. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful today to be able to sing words of testimony, words that call us to worship, words that reflect upon the grace that we've received, words that confess at times our own weakness, and amazingly that our love would ebb and flow. What an amazing thing that the ones that receive perfect love No sin, no flaws, no insufficiencies in your actions and your position toward us, and yet our love is imperfect. It's distracted. And we are the ones who by nature are fallen and rebels, sin against you greatly. 
And your love never knows any faulting, any, any diminishing. What a wonder indeed it is. Well, grant us grace today to marvel something anew in the love you have to our souls. We ask your help as we begin to open this book and pray that you'll prosper us within it. And we pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Well, I've announced my intentions to preach through the book of Romans. It's something that in over, can I utter this sentence, in over 30 years of ministry, I've never done. I've preached from the book of Romans. I've preached more than one series out of the book. I've probably quoted from the book more than any other books in the Scripture in various sermons along the way. And yet we've never just tried to begin and go through. Uh, I'm not going to make any predictions or comments on the length of our study except to say this, it is not my intention uh, to do such a a minuscule verse-by-verse exposition that we spend the next decade in the book of Romans. Uh, Not that such a study might not have its points of value, but I don't want us to be bogged down Uh, I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees, as it were. Sometimes I think in what's called expository preaching, uh, we could perhaps share comments on that. I'll just say this, all biblical preaching should be and is expository. It's expounding the Word, whatever style, whatever organizational principle it takes from the Word. Some suggest like a biographical sermon in the Old Testament on the life of Joseph, which we've greatly enjoyed here in years past, is not expository preaching. I differ. Uh, But all that to say, some of the passage preaching, I think it's better defined, that goes through in such minuscule detail in a book such as Romans, could indeed take years. Um, I intend at least perhaps to look at this as we've looked at some of the other epistles, almost more paragraph by paragraph instead of word by word, but that's just an overly general description. And it may be that we'll pause on some particular phrases. Uh, I may have to deal with the temptation to pause on the phrase that closes verse 1, separated unto the gospel of God. I intend to mention that today, but there's a whole theme that suggests itself in the way Paul phrases that. Um, So we may take some sermons on little pieces, uh, but my intention is to just try and gather the, the argument itself. So to study Romans, is it intimidating? Yes. Is it deep and theological? Yes. Is it straightforward and in a way simple? Yes. I trust the Lord will give us help in our study. It would be difficult to overstate the importance of the book of Romans. And I pause, even in saying that, to consider something of a, quote, problem. At least it's a problem that occurred to me along the way. How can we esteem any part of Scripture, which is all equally inspired of God and given to us, more important than another part or other parts of Scripture? Well, it's not to say that all of Scripture is not inspired. It's not to say that all of Scripture is not important. It's not to say that all of Scripture should not be read. Hint, hint. 
reading through the Bible in our homes and in our private lives, all of the Word. It's all profitable. But there's some portions of the Word that are, if we can use the phrase, more familiar and more popular than other portions because of their importance. It's because they usually bring together large pieces of truth in a smaller package. They are those portions where you get to look at the forest and not just a tree or a leaf. Romans is like that. I mean, if you wanted to go back and study the genealogies that are recorded for us in the Old Testament and some of those passages that get a little more difficult in our annual reading through of the Scriptures, yet in that little phrase that the Lord Jesus, according to the flesh, was of the seed of David. And you can mark through God keeping record of that promise and how the promise even of the seed of the woman all the way back in Genesis 3 is is carried through and not forgotten. But I think it's in some ways like if you could imagine a husband that is separated from his wife and his family in a war overseas. Letters can come back. You've seen documentaries of Women with boxes of letters from their husbands. Well, one letter might say something like, today we did this many miles in the forest in France. And yesterday was a difficult day and I lost a friend. And another letter might be, honey, do you remember when we first met? And kind of walks through the big picture. Well, a wife might tuck a letter like that away in a a different place in the file because it wasn't just giving it a tale about this day or that problem or that battle or that narrow escape. It was was bringing, bringing a lot together in one place. Well, I think it's in that sense that Romans is more important than other portions of Scripture. In it, the Apostle, in it, the Lord, is bringing before us a lot that is indeed contained in the other portions of Scripture, even in those important genealogies. But yet it's crystallized. It's brought into one place. It's even very systematically and logically arranged for us so that it's put before us piece by piece carefully so that we don't miss the big picture, so that we don't misunderstand what God is doing in giving us the Gospel. And that is indeed exactly what Romans is. It's a straightforward presentation of the Gospel. It's a careful point-by-point giving of the good news that God saves sinners. And I trust we'll not lose sight of that overall picture in this book that is a summary of the overall picture. So I say the importance of the book could hardly be overstated. There's also the matter of its historic significance. It's no accident that Romans appears in the New Testament in the place that it does, in the order of the canon of the New Testament epistles. Romans is Paul's longest epistle, but it's not in front because it's the longest. It's not in front because it's 
the earliest, because it clearly isn't the earliest of Paul's letters. It's in front because it's the most important, universally recognized as the most important, and placed first then in this section of the New Testament where we have the epistles that are are given to us. It's his historic significance is also noted not only by its placement in the canon by the early church, but by its impact in the lives of giants of church history. Not a few of the commentators on Romans and even preachers on Romans point out that some of the biggest names, that some of the biggest crises in the history of the church have been impacted by this book and drawn from this book. Augustine. That early church father that was fighting some of the Christological heresies, or rather the Arian heresy, I'm getting my church history confused, the Pelagian heresy with regard to the gospel, Augustine drew from Romans, personally impacted by Romans, preaching and teaching from Romans to combat that Pelagian heresy of man really not needing, as it were, this type of salvation. And you come, of course, to look at the Reformation, the dark ages of self-righteousness and Romanism that descended upon the church. Where does Luther draw so much of his truth and his understanding? The book of Romans. So I say its historic significance, again, could, be, could hardly be overstated. Romans is a big book. Well, I want today simply to try and introduce the book, and to introduce it very generally, and I'd like to do so, and even include our three-point outline, as it were, for today, inside of a sentence. And that sentence is this, Romans is a book written by an unlikely writer to unexpected recipients with an unusual message. Those are the three areas of our comments today, and again, by way of introducing the book. Romans is a book written by an unlikely writer to an unexpected or to unexpected recipients with an unusual message. And I hope by looking at these three parts of my sentence that we'll get at least something of a a brief introduction to the book. So first... It's a book written by an unlikely writer. Well, our opening sentence, our opening word, Paul. I've told some of you the story from years ago, but there was a time in Greenville when one of the men from Northern Ireland who taught homiletics, uh, S.B. Cook, was over teaching us for a month homiletics to give us a little break from Dr. Cairns. I don't know how much of a break it was. He was pretty difficult as well. Uh, not in the personal sense, but in the academic sense. Um, but he had been preaching through the book of Jude in his own church, and he said he wanted to preach one of those messages. And as he began to expound the book of Jude, the first word of the book is Jude. And he preached an entire message on the name Jude. It was a powerful message. It wasn't one of those passage-preaching kind of messages where he you know, went back to the Greek and analyzed the name. He went through the Gospels, everywhere in the New Testament where that word, where that name appears, because it's also the name of Judas Iscariot, 
who also betrayed him. It's qualified in each case. When this Jude is mentioned, it's Jude not Iscariot. Well, Paul is the opening word of the book of Romans. I don't want to preach a message like our brother Cook's message was, but I suggest here that we do have an unlikely writer. And if we can just look very cursorily at the history of Paul as we find him in the New Testament, Paul, who was born Saul of Tarsus, so many pieces of this man's life, so much divine preparation and divine intervention in his life. But I say if we had known him 20 years prior to the writing of this book, no one would have ever dreamed he would have written this book to these people about this topic. It wouldn't have been his mindset. It wouldn't have reflected his understanding of truth at all. Who is this Paul? Well, we can say in the providence of God, he was uniquely prepared. Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus isn't a city that we think of often and mention. I wonder if the other two cities I'm getting ready to mention get taught in school much anymore. You wonder what school's about these days. But Athens and Alexandria were two cities of the ancient world that were centers of Greek education and learning. Alexandria, famous for its library, but for its teaching that surrounded that library as well. Athens, famed in the history of Greece and the philosophers, etc. But Tarsus rivaled these cities with regard to its culture and its influence and its Greek education. And Saul of Tarsus was brought up into the learning, we can might borrow a phrase from Moses, who was reared in Pharaoh's household and all the learning of the Egyptians. Well, Paul was brought up in all the learning of the Greeks. You find in his correspondence with the Corinthians that he quotes from the Greek poets. He was mindful of those. I remember one of the deans down at Bob Jones when I was there, and not to take too long of a rabbit trail, but I feel like one of the strengths of Bob Jones through the years has been liberal arts education. Study of different disciplines from a Christian perspective. I particularly like history from a Christian perspective without revisionist motives and so forth. But science, boy, there's some pretty significance to Christian background and understanding there. But every now and then the preacher boys would complain about some of the classes they had to take, you know, like history of civilization, biological science survey, phylums and species and gender. I, can't, I had an acrostic for all those, but I don't remember it now. I'll have to try and pull that up. One of the deans was interacting with one of these ministerial students who was saying, all we got to know is the Bible. And they said, didn't the Apostle Paul quote the Greek poets? Ever see a preacher boy shut up quickly? That was one of those days. Paul was educated in Greek philosophy as well as his education as a Pharisee. The Athenians, even though they mocked him, what will this babbler say? They knew there was something there. And they gave him an audience there on Mars Hill. I say he was uniquely prepared because he had that upbringing, but of course, most notably was his Jewish upbringing. 
a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he would have, we spoke of perhaps committing some of these chunks of Romans to memory along the way. He would have chunks of the Old Testament committed to memory. Been a man of the Word very greatly, as it were. But also in his being so uniquely prepared. You see, significantly in Acts, actually just after chapter 15, where we read of that division between himself and Barnabas, I was thinking of pausing there today because I don't think we need to understand that that disagreement uh, led to personal animosity and a bitterness that was the cause of their separation. And it says there they were commended by the church as they went. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that it was limited just because Paul and Silas are mentioned last that the church commended them and didn't commend Barnabas and his companions and John Mark. But in the providence of God, when he took Silas with them on that second missionary journey, and as they sought the Lord, as we'll see in a moment, as to where to go along the way during that journey, the fact that Paul, and now his companion as well, Silas, were Roman citizens, was significant. And so Paul, I say, had a unique preparation for this task. Jewish heritage and credentials, Greek education, Roman citizenship. It was quite the package, if you will. But if we look at this unlikely writer, not only was he uniquely prepared, but he was personally hardened. This was a proud Pharisee. This was a man who took it upon himself to persecute Christians, to try and put an end to this strange reading of the Old Testament in their synagogues to somehow reach the conclusion it was talking about Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Of course, we know that the risen Christ recently studied that post-resurrection appearance where he stopped this Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, opened his eyes and opened his heart. But this man had been personally hardened against the gospel. If anything I say made him an unlikely writer, nothing more than this. But I was thinking about it and even just thinking about the turn of phrase with regard to this aspect. Saul of Tarsus later called Paul through the remainder of his life in, in the New Testament was so changed by the power of the gospel that he was moved from being willing to kill for his message as he was a hardened Pharisee to being willing to die for his message as he was a servant of Jesus Christ. I know that there are ambassadors of false religions that are willing to die for their message. But the difference between them and Paul is they would much rather kill for their message going forth and only die if necessary. That's not the heart of Paul. That's not the heart of the people of God. And when you hear the pundits In the news, when certain topics come up, talk about the history of the church and 
the violence that the church has been engaged in, the Christian church over the centuries. Understand this. When false religions pursue violence in their propagating of their message, they're acting in accordance with their, quote, sacred texts. When the church has stooped to using violence in the history of the world, it's when in its unbelief it has acted contrary to God's Word. Paul, I say, moved from being one that was willing to kill for his message to being one that was willing to die for his message. He could even state at one point he could wish himself accursed so that others might believe and hear. If Paul was uniquely prepared, although personally hardened, he was also graciously called. We'll speak more of this when we come to verse 7 in a later study. We'll mention that today, but we see Paul in that opening verse describing himself a servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle. A servant and one called. Our unlikely writer, Saul of Tarsus, was a man uniquely prepared. A man that God arrested from his sin, graciously called and was so overwhelmed with the grace that he had received that he gave the rest of his life preaching that grace to others. Nowhere more eloquently, nowhere more carefully than in this book of Romans that is before us. So Romans is a book written by an unlikely writer. Two unexpected recipients. Paul writes, we look to verse 7, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. The Roman Christians, church, perhaps more accurately stated churches in Rome. We see the phrase, the church that is in their house. See, churches have been in houses for a long time as we gather in this house slash not house of a church. But I say unexpected recipients. There's no record of the founding of the church in Rome. Just the record that there are believers there. We have, as we go to the later chapters and the greetings that Paul mentions along the way, Evidence that there are Jews and Gentiles that are equally represented in this church at Rome. We find that it is a church, most notably or most definitely, that was not founded by the Apostle Paul, nor do we understand it to be founded by any of the other apostles. Because if you look in chapter 15 of this very book, Paul talks about the fact that he didn't go normally to other places where other men had labored. He was a pioneer. He was going places where Christ hadn't been named, where churches hadn't been established. One of his purposes, you see in writing, as he speaks about coming to them, was their establishment. And so, these unexpected recipients, where did they come from? Well, we'll not take time to turn up the portions, but... If you go back to Acts 2, and you have the record there of the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit, the 3,000 souls that are converted in that one day, 
in the preaching of Peter's Pentecostal sermon. Well, one of the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit that day was that the apostles were given the ability to preach in other languages. And the people from all these various places that were mentioned, they marvel that they heard the Word in their own tongues. And in chapter 2 of Acts and verse 10, part of those that are listed as the out-of-towners, if you will, in Jerusalem for the feast, were strangers of Rome. Strangers of Rome. It's followed, it says, Jews and proselytes. Some suggest perhaps that's qualifying the ones from Rome that were there. I think perhaps it may be just qualifying those from all the places they've mentioned. Those of Jewish heritage, and then those from non-Jewish heritage that were proselytes that were in Jerusalem for the feast. But there were some from Rome. Two decades more before. That had doubtless returned to Rome. Were numbered among those that were converted that day. And began to spread the news. Priscilla and Aquila are two notable Christians that the book of Acts mentions and actually follows somewhat if you look through the history. They meet up with Paul in chapter 18 in his second missionary journey as he's in Corinth. Paul abides with them for a season because they were of the same craft, the same trade. They were tent makers. But Luke, the historian, includes the reference there that Priscilla and Aquila were in Corinth because Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome. There's a historical record by Suetonius, a Roman historian, who has a note, and he, he recognizes or notes there in his history that the Jews were expelled from Rome because of riots and uprisings that were based upon somebody named Crestus. And many scholars understand this to be his misspelling of Christus, Christ. And perhaps Suetonius thought that he was a living person in Rome at the time, but many understand, and I think perhaps with great warrant, because if you see what the preaching of Christ, of Christus, did among the Jews in the synagogues and the other cities where Paul went, I mean, a lot of the book of Acts, when you see the trouble that was stirred up in those cities, you know, it wasn't all the boys down at Joe's pool hall, bar and grill or whatever, that were, you know, we've got to get rid of this preacher. I didn't care, let him preach. It was Jews that were offended by the message Paul brought that began to stir up trouble among themselves and among others. And indeed, we seem to at least have record of that stirring up of Rome, this would have been about A.D. 49 that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome about ten years before the writing of our epistle to the Romans. So the message of Christ has come into this capital city remarkably without apostolic travel, without apostolic preaching the testimony of others. And you even think about that with the phrase Paul uses that their faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Of course, we know that Rome being the capital would have been a place of much going and coming. But we can say, I say, that these are unexpected recipients 
from the standpoint, yes, of no apostolic activity there to this point, but unexpected also from the standpoint of who they were. They were citizens in the capital of the world, a place where people from all over the world came, a place where people from all over the world intermingled and shared what? Their sins. A city filled with debauchery and wickedness of every kind. And yet it's a city where there's a church. There are believers there. Unexpected, yes. But those that had experienced the power of God. Romans was written to these unexpected recipients during Paul's third missionary journey. There was a three-month period, almost a hiatus in Paul's ministry. The first journey was him and Barnabas, and they traveled to Cyprus, and then just up into what is our modern-day Turkey. In the second journey, they went, Paul and Silas, as we just read there in 1 Corinthians 15. They went back to visit these churches. They go into Asia Minor, our Turkey. There's a season where they, they, they want to go here, they want to go there. Places where the gospel is going to flourish later, but the Spirit said, No, not now. And of course, that Philippian Macedonian call, and we see there in that second journey the gospel crossing that body of water there between Greece and Asia Minor, and it comes to Europe. And Paul ministers, and he on his way back to Jerusalem or to Antioch just pauses in Ephesus, but he, he just goes on. But in his third journey, he travels, he lands in Ephesus, and that's where he says that great door and effectual is opened unto him. And for two and a half toward three years, he ministers in Ephesus, and he, he labors, as we saw in our study of Ephesians a few years ago, in that afternoon classroom in the school of Tyrannus. And I often think and even mention this in our studies of Ephesians. What do you think Paul was doing lecturing there? I mean, he was giving seminary classes to new believers and young men, faithful men that would be able to teach others also. And probably a lot of the content of what we read in Romans is what Paul was teaching in Ephesus. But Paul leaves Ephesus and he goes to Corinth and for about three months there's a a little hiatus. He's traveling to collect briefly the offerings for the impoverished in Judea that the Gentile churches were collecting. He's going to take that with him to Jerusalem. It's just a remarkable part of the story. Paul comes bringing great gifts to a needy place and they decide they'll try and murder him in the process when he gets there. But it's in that three months there in Corinth that he's waiting and gathering this collection that's been raised that he pens this book. Our book of Romans. I say it's a book written by an unlikely writer to unexpected recipients with our third little thought, an unusual message. I say unusual here simply because the Gospel is unusual. The Gospel is not what we would expect from sinful man. 
The Gospel is not what naturally comes to mind when sinners think about being reconciled to God. The natural thought is, I've got to somehow make up for myself. You know, I've got to have my good works outweigh my bad works. Almost the universal direction of false thinking and false religion. I'm having one of the students that I'm actually tutoring in one class read James Buchanan's classic on the doctrine of justification. One of the quiz questions has to do with whether it's a true-false question. That sacrifice that we find introduced in Genesis naturally occurred to the mind of fallen man. True or false? Okay, that's rhetorical. I was waiting a little bit. but well, Of course it's false. You think that Adam, who's just fallen and condemned the race to the wrath of God, he's insulted his Creator. He's done exactly what the Creator told him not to do. He said, oh yeah, I'll, I'll fix this. I'm going to go kill one of his animals. Yeah, it makes sense, right? Of course it doesn't make sense. But it's an object lesson that God brings with this unusual message. That He's going to save sinners. Sinners who can't save themselves. Sinners for whom any attempt to save themselves is an insult to God. It's an insult to His law. It does indeed add insult to injury. It's actually not the term we can use. We don't injure God. We rebel against Him. We insult Him. Now this is an unusual message. The God for whom that first covenant, the only thing it was obligated to do with Adam and all that were in Adam, was condemn them as being transgressors. But He chose to do something else. He chose to deal with them in another covenant. Through another head. We'll probably talk when we come to chapter 5 of that federal theology. Headship. But this is an unusual message. This is a message that's so unusual. Paul has to deal with questions that will arise from it. Most notably, that transition from chapter 5 to chapter 6. This good news. When you think of the Gospel, verse 1, Paul speaks of the Gospel of God. Then you come to verse 3, concerning His Son. And Paul doesn't give us any doubt, any question. You talk about some of the, the structure of Romans in contrast to some of the other epistles. You come to verses 16 and 17. Paul has, through a worthy introduction, with greeting and yet content along the way, funneled down to 
to a thesis statement where he speaks here about not being ashamed, verse 16, of the gospel of Christ. For it's the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. There's a thesis. We've had talk in the seminary committee about whether to offer course in writing. It seems schools nowadays aren't overly interested in well, what is it, the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And often men come to study and they've never had to write a paper about anything. They need my sixth grade teacher. First research paper I ever had to write, sixth grade. Footnotes, bibliography, card file, Oh yeah, you don't have those anymore. Right. Well, I digress. But our little sentence, I say, Romans is a book written by an unlikely writer to unexpected recipients with an unusual message. You see, when you think about man appearing in the presence of God, we can go further and think about sinners coming to be accepted by this God. Well, for some, this message is it's too insulting to accept. Those are the self-righteous. That was Paul before God opened his eyes and opened his heart. There's some for whom this message is too good to be true. These are those indeed impressed with their guilt, but hopeless of any remedy. But instead, Romans brings us a message, unusual though it may be, that's too precious to refuse. That God saves sinners. He does so through the merits of another and grants them to us by faith. I trust the Lord will help us as we go into this most important book. To be challenged and blessed by the truth that's contained within it. To not be merely a dry rehearsing of theology. But be a warm understanding of truth. Romans, I say, written by an unlikely writer to unexpected recipients such as ourselves with an unusual message. The gracious message God saves sinners. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come and ask today even in the reading of these precious opening words Challenge us again. Lord, for many of us, I trust these are truths that we know. But yet you even speak through the Apostle Peter in your word that we would be constantly reminded of things even though we know them. 
that we might be established in the truth. That was one of the things the apostle was concerned about. Romans being established, being well-grounded. Lord, it is in such troubled days, as we've seen and noted today, has been true in the history of your church, where the waters are troubled, where darkness seems to prevail, that you've grounded men in the truths of this book, that it might be a shining light out of the darkness. Lord, ground us in such truth in our increasingly troubled days. We ask that you will bless us along our little journey. And we pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.